Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the critically acclaimed network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic for the Slashing of Films. It's a website called Slash Film. I don't know how I did that. The Slashing of Films. I think I was going to say The Wrap, and then I was like, no, I'm going to start with Slash Film, and then it just kind of turned into a whole yeah, new kind of, thing. Yeah, kind of stumbled around in your mouth yeah. there. But anyway, I write for those, and everybody calls me Bibs. Who are you? Uh, oh, I'm Whitney Seibold. I, I, too, am a critic. I write for Slash Film. For the purposes of, uh, purposes of this particular podcast, hmm. you can call me Rockmeister McCool. If you wish, you don't have to. You can also just call me Whitney. That's true. But it is your one opportunity to call him Rockmeister McCool. I suggest you take it. Here's how this works. You email us. You might have something to say about one of our many podcasts. You might just have a question you want us to answer. You might have a critique. Anything at all, really. The floor is yours. We'll respond. And uh, you can do that very easily. You can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyclaimed.net. Or you can send us an old-fashioned letter. Whitney, how do they do that? Uh, Send us an actual physical letter. Put it in an envelope. Mm. Lick it shut. Or if you have one of those peely uh, adhesive Mm. bobs, seal it shut. Put a stamp on it. Mm. And address it to P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Now, I do not want to discourage anyone in our listening audience Mm. from sending us a postcard. So you do not necessarily need an envelope. I guess you're right. But that is the general standard. Yes. Yes. Um, And we have an email uh, as well. We don't have any letters uh, from our post office this week. Not this week. Uh, We don't get so many letters that we have to put physical letters aside. Mm -hmm. So if you want your letter read, it's pretty pretty a solid guarantee at this Mm -hmm. point that if you mail it to us as a physical letter, we'll get to it. Yes. Uh, But for right now, it's it's an email kind of week. mm -hmm. Whitney... Tell us about our first email. Uh, here's an email from David. Hello, David. Uh, it says, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, this is a bit of a long one, so uh, okay. I, I hope you are both well. Forgive me for a moment. As I get a little self-indulgent ahead of asking my uh, actual question, I had been previously out of work for a few months. Sorry to hear that. Sorry to hear and that. Uh, since I usually listen to podcasts as I work, I had gotten behind on listening to your shows. However, I've been catching up since I resumed, resumed work in April. Congratulations. Congratulations. Uh, going back as far as October to catch up on your thoughts, new and wow. old, and obscure releases, whatever your discussion turns to. One string of episodes I found particularly interesting were those concerning the new Sight and Sound poll. Nice. Uh, I loved hearing your thoughts on the list itself, as well as your own personal choices and, and those of your listeners. So, if I may, I would like to share my own personal list. You may! Some six months late to discussion. You know what? It's still relevant. These things come along every decade. Yeah. Six, whatever, send six months. Send, send us two years in. You're still on time. Yeah. Uh, however, there's a big caveat. Listing the best films of all time is a nigh-impossible task. True. While I have my personal favorites, decisively deeming said favorites as one of the best films of all time can at times feel almost sacrilegious. So instead, I've listed below 10 films that, as the kids would say, live rent-free in my head. Nice. That's a good uh, way to do it. The films I have seen that are permanently etched themselves into my brain and I cannot stop thinking about, be them for bold messages, incredible images and moments, or sheer emotional potency. Call it the 10 best films I can't stop thinking about that may or may not also be the 10 best films of all time, but don't quote me on that. Really rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? I like it. Um, these first four would make my personal best of all time if I was forced to pick. I love them, and I can never stop thinking about them. Listed in order of release, Punch Drunk Love. Yes, I love Punch Drunk Love. From 2002. Yeah. Old Joy, Kelly Reichardt, 2006. I haven't seen that one. Uh, okay. Still Walking, Hirokazu Koreeda. Oh, I know so, you're happy about that. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, 
as good as Ozu, uh, 2008. And Lady, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig, 2017. Oh, nice. That's a good movie. The next six are Rome Open City, Roberto Rossellini. Oh, good pick. Uh, as a religious man, this is the single best dis- depiction of how faith and religion should be followed and acted upon. It also helps that it is an anti-fascist masterpiece. Mm-hmm. It's one of the uh, it's uh, one of the early Italian neo-realist films. Yeah, 1945. I feel like it doesn't get talked about as much as it should. Uh, in film to, like, schools it is. Yeah, but, but yeah. I feel like when, usually when people bring up Italian neo-realism, the first thing they come up with is Bicycle Thieves or mm. maybe Umberto Day. Yeah. Rome Open City should be right up there. It's really Yeah, excellent. for sure. Uh, next up, Millionaire's Express, directed by Sammo Hung, 1986. Oh, I haven't seen uh, if, that one. if anyone ever tells me they loved Bullet Train, I can tell them to watch this, the most ludicrously fun action movie I've watched in quite a while, The Avengers of 80s Hong Kong Action Cinema. Yeah, Sam, no, very few people can uh, choreograph an action sequence like Sammo Hung. Mm. I have not seen that one, but I don't doubt that that's uh, awesome. you, You've recommended a couple of Sammo Hung films. I love, I, so, yeah. You know, some of his stuff is very dated in its attitudes, well, but the fight scenes can Of course they're be dated. Good. They're made in the past, but... Uh, uh, some of them more than others. Oh, I suppose so. Yeah. Uh, next up, Daughter of the Nile, directed by Hu Xiaoxian, 1987. Ooh. I'm not overly familiar with the works of Wong Kar Wai, but from what I have seen and can gather, Hu Xiaoxian laid all the groundwork for him, and it saddens me that he doesn't quite get the same respect and recognition for an extensive filmography of some of the most moving, striking films I've ever seen. Daughter of the Nile is his crown jewel. I'm woefully underwatched with Hu Shen. I know. I've seen Millennium Mambo and that's yeah. kind of it. I know so um, many people who consider them one of the greats. Yeah. And I've really seen little or nothing, honestly. It's a, it is a, a, a hole in my film watching experience. Yeah. There, there's yeah. A, 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 I will get to Hu Shen someday. Yes. Um, next up, Rebels of the Neon God Ooh. by Timing Lang. My, oh, I love Tsai. Um, <laughs> For what is already a very low-key film, it's remarkable that Tsai Ming-Liang's films sometimes become more low-key moving forwards. This is like the works of Hu Xiaoxian. Uh, it's the kind of film that I would think the film Twitter slash letterbox crowd would be all over if they knew existed. Mm. The score still haunts me to this day. Yeah, Rebels of the Neon God. Um, it, it was made in 1992, and if you were a, a teenager in 1992 like the characters were, you will smell the arcades in this movie. You will smell the dingy hallways and the, the matted, dirty carpets. Uh, doesn't matter where you're from. It's, you know, it's... It's, just, it's a universal it's wonderful, Wonderfully kind of visceral, yeah. that kind of movie. Uh, and, a uh, bit of a surprise, Titanic. Hey! James Cameron, 1987. Look, sometimes a movie just gets gets to you. I knew everything about the Titanic and its ending before I saw it in full for the first time, but that didn't stop me from bawling my eyes out. DiCaprio in this film is, for my money, one of the finest movie star performances ever. People often compare Timothy Chalamet to a young Leo, and to them I say, Chalamet is good, but he could never pull off this role. <laughs> I'll, I'll say this for Titanic, and, mm. and James Cameron in general. He has nailed... Uh, a very specific type of pop filmmaking. Yes. Uh, when when people refer to like Hollywood filmmaking, if you just want sort of that sort of the platonic ideal of that, that's kind of what James Cameron does with Titanic. I think Titanic in particular. I, in and I've actually argued I think Titanic is his masterpiece. I yeah. do. Is it is it as maybe clever yeah. as Terminator? No. Mm-hmm. Is it as action packed and like you know sort of influentially violent as Aliens? No. It nails everything it does. Mm. Every single thing it sets out to do, it does at the height of its powers. Yeah. It is a great teen romance. It is a great sort of class struggle movie. It is a fucking phenomenal historical epic and disaster film. Uh-huh. And 
I have a lot of affection for it. I will say this: if you've uh, if you've seen James Cameron's Titanic, and whether you love it or hate it, I recommend because I rewatched this for like the anniversary of the Titanic this year, hmm. the nineteen fifty three Titanic, which oh, was, doesn't get um, talked about well, nearly as much. Who did the fifty three Titanic? It was a Jean Nicolesco. Oh, I wouldn't have, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have pulled that one out. No, no. Most people, yeah. most people from that era will remember a night to remember, right? Which is very good. Titanic, 1953. Watch that movie. Pay attention because James Cameron sure as hell did. Oh, he's, and you can, he there's plucked, like lines of dialogue. He yeah. plucked characters out of that thing, like fictional characters, just and suddenly if, popped up in James Cameron's movie. I, I I can't confirm this, but if you listen closely to one of the lines of dialogue in um, A Night to Remember, mm. uh, somebody talks about being fucking rich. Uh-huh. I think they use the F word in that movie. Oh, no shit. Uh, I doubt it. It just uh, <laughs> maybe they're saying they're saying something different, but it's difficult to say. I don't recall. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, and finally, probably the closest to joining my top four mm. is Wet Hot American Summer, Yay! directed by David Wayne, two thousand one. To quote Comic the late great Roger, e- to, to quote Roger Ebert, every once in a while, I have to think of what I, I have to. Th- I have what I think of as an out of body experience at a movie when the ESP people use fra- a phrase like that. They're referring to the sensation of the mind actually leaving the body and spiriting itself off to China or Peoria or a galaxy far, far away. When I use the phrase, I simply mean that my imagination has forgotten it is actually present in a movie theater and thinks up there, thinks it's up there on the screen. In a curious sense, the events in the movie seem real, and I seem to be part of them. That's my experience with the seminal comedic masterpiece, Wet Hot American Summer. <laughs> it's one of the funniest movies ever made. Yeah. Uh, ironically, Roger Ebert didn't like Wet Hot American that Summer. That is very ironic, about, but you know what? Review. Raj wasn't always right. Raj was always right because he followed his heart. That's what I'm going to say. Eh. Did I always agree with Raj? No. Okay, we're splitting hairs, but yes, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, thank you for indulging me for so long. Anyway, to my question. Ah! Uh, I loved your recent review of The Flash and thought, I haven't seen the movie myself. I really admired your dissection of the film's spectacle as taking place in an open, barren, uninteresting landscape. A major fault I've been noticing in a lot of big modern blockbusters, especially as it reeks of studios handling action sequences over to talented yet restricted and studio-mandated second units or overworked, underpaid, and exploited... VFX artists. Mm. It would seem in many ways the art of the set piece of, of the major blockbuster is dying out. So my question to you is, what are some of your favorite action sequences that take place in interesting, complex, surprising, entertaining settings? Mm. I recently saw John Woo's Hard Boiled for the ah, first time and lost my the... mind over the big shoot 'em up climactic all-out war uh, taking place in a of. hospital with lots of newborn babies. That was the first thing I thought. Truly madman filmmaking. Uh, thanks for your time and giving me airspace to my long-winded yet hopefully fun letter. All the best, David. Uh, yeah, a lot of action. That's, that's a good list. Um, it's a great list. Yeah, that's a great list. Thank you for including list. Rebels of the Neon God. Yeah, uh, I love to, that we have everyone... people who will write to us about Rebels of the Neon. Re- Rebels God. of the Neon God. Um, Some people are only talking about Secret Invasion this week, and we get Rebels of the Rebels Neon of the God, God yeah. letters. Uh, to everybody who's listening, seek out the filmography of Timing Liang. Watch Goodbye Dragon. Inn. Uh, watch Days. These are all wonderful movies. I love them so much, uh, but. <laughs> As for action sequences, um, for me, you're probably asking the wrong guy. I've never really been impressed by action sequences just sort of as an entity unto themselves. Yeah, you're not really an action... You like I, action movies, but you're not an action movie guy. Well, especially the way they're made these days. The, mm. the uh, idea that a film needs to climax with a big fight, and the fight mm. lasts a long time, and that's how everything's solved. And mm. I've always seen action sequences as... Uh, the, the same way I view sex scenes. Mm. They're little intermissions from the drama. The story stops, everybody gets to take a breath, 
and enjoy a little bit of spectacle for a bit. Uh, who wins it? All that's really important in the action sequences is like who dies and who wins at the end, right? Well, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, but go on. Finish your point. <laughs> uh, so when it comes to like that particular action sequence was impressive, it has to be doing something really clever to just get my attention at all. Mm. I feel like those Mission Impossible movies do that. They have a lot of good set pieces. Yeah, they're just movies, they're yeah. able to photograph and pace action sequences in a way that is kind of beyond what you see in your average. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they really employ their location really well, like just about anything Jackie Chan is involved with. Jackie Chan. He's, um, he's always been really yeah. careful to have action sequences or fights that employ what's in the room. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an action sequence in an arcade, he's going to smash somebody's head into a pinball machine. Exactly. There's a really wonderful uh, scene. One of my favorite Jackie Chan movies is still Rumble in the Bronx, yep. uh, which was the first one I saw, so it's kind of dear to me, uh, where he's in a bar, and a bad guy's trying to pick up a bottle and throw it at him, but as soon as he grabs it, Jackie Chan grabs it as well, so he can't pick it up. And so he reaches to the next bottle, and Jackie Chan is just as quick, grabs that bottle. Yeah. He, they do that, like, six times in about a second. It's like, boom, 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 boom. And so much, like, movement is happening, and the panic rises all in that short span of time. It's really exhilarating. Yeah. Uh, you know, if he fights near a, a refrigerator, somebody's getting their head staved in with a refrigerator door, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Otherwise, you know, uh, or if you're working with like a really horrendously low budget and all you have is a car and a stick of dynamite mm-hmm. and you do something really dangerous. Yeah. That shit's impressive because that's real. Yeah. <laughs> that's not fake or staged or choreographed. They just blew up a car because that was fun. Yeah. And I like that kind of action sequence as well. Something in a really low budget action. No, movie. like uh, if you look at uh, the original El Mariachi. Mm-hmm. Where uh, it was movie was so cheap they couldn't afford blanks, so they just fired real bullets. They just fired real bullets, <laughs> but they fired them off camera, so it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> at, at who? Who's off camera? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. They're off camera. If they're off camera. They don't exist. Yeah, right. No, it's really it's really dangerous. Um, I agree with you on some of those points. I don't agree that a great action sequence ultimately boils down to who wins uh-huh. because. That can happen, and I think that's often the Western tradition. Hmm. But I personally believe that a great action sequence shouldn't be a pause from the story. It should be a continuation of the Hmm. story. Or at the very least, it can be. Obviously, there are exceptions to every rule. I'm talking about my personal taste. I think a lot of the best action sequences that I've ever seen were action sequences that didn't just have action and result in one person alive and another person dead, but actually conveyed character and their development as a character. Kung Fu movies are a classic example of this. Not just like the modern Jackie Chan films. Police Story has a lot of great set pieces in it. The mall, the car chase down the shantytown. Um, But the old like Shaw Brothers martial arts movies that are about martial arts. They're about developing fight skills. They're about developing fight skills, fight Mm. styles, that are about the way that martial arts becomes a matter of discipline and personal growth as demonstrated through your ability to become better at martial arts. Mm. And this can have, this can be very, very, you know, serious. Uh, uh, Executioner's Shaolin is a classic example of that. But it can also be very, very funny. And one of my favorite, one example I was thinking of here is. Return to the 36th Chamber. Okay. The 36th Chamber is about a guy who uh, is 
he was run out of town. He wanted to stand up against their corrupt government. And he flees to a Shaolin temple. Mm-hmm. And his plan is to learn martial arts from the Shaolin monks and then come back and not only kick ass, but teach people martial arts as well. To uh-huh. bring martial arts back to the people who need it. Uh, there is... Uh, a, a chamber for each individual thing you need to learn in order to become a master of Kung Fu. There are 35. Mm. The 36 is the one he invents at the end. The sequel is Return to the 36 Chamber in which Gordon Liu, who played the hero in the last one, he's back, but he plays a different character. Okay. And the character he played in the original movie is now played by someone else and has scenes with Gordon Liu. And it's very confusing. <laughs> but it is about a gang that is uh, putting the squeeze on a clothes dyeing factory. You know, they take okay. clothes, make them red, make them blue, whatever. Mm. Uh, and he is... Uh, he, he impersonates a Kung Fu master in order to try to trick them into leaving. It doesn't work. So now he's got to learn Kung Fu. He tries to trick his way into the Shaolin Temple. They say, no fucking way. And your penance is we want you to build a scaffolding around the entire martial arts training area. And okay. he spends the entire like middle part of the movie watching everyone else learn the martial arts we saw in the first movie. And training while he's building scaffolding. And at All the right. end of the movie, he has developed a new martial art scaffolding kung fu (laughs) kung fu using the materials you create in scaffolding okay and it the last big action sequence is a bunch of scaffolding in kung fu and it is delightful all right uh probably a longer setup than that needed um in the american sense though like sort of like big blockbusters i always appreciate an american blockbuster that can show me an action sequence i haven't seen before yeah and the first thing that came to mind on that level was White House down the car chase on the front lawn of the White House? <laughs> like just that's that, a fun sequence. It's a fun sequence, and it it I love that sequence because it showed me something I've always wanted to do, which is cut donuts on the White House lawn. <laughs> uh, Channing Tatum yeah. is protecting the president. They get in the, the the presidential limo, which of course has a rocket launcher in it. A bunch of bad guys get in another car that has like a Gatling gun on the back, mm-hmm. and they're, and they're chasing, chasing each other each other on the White House lawn. Meanwhile, yeah. like the National Guard is outside, and they're like, "Should we use a tank to blow up the 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 fence so that the president can escape in his badass limo?" And they're like, "Yeah, do it!" <laughs> and it's Damn it, I haven't seen that before, or since. Yeah, yeah. No one has had the moxie. Mm. Bless them for it. Yeah, there, there's, um, like I said, if you're doing something new, I'm all mm. about an action sequence. Yeah. Uh, I, I would never impugn something like Seven Samurai, for instance. Oh, yeah. Um, there, or if there's something, like, visually interesting going on. There's a chase sequence in that film Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, I love it. Where it's, it's just one of the most visually impressive things you'll see in any science fiction movie. Yeah. Uh, really, any science fiction movie. Where um, the main character, Valerian, like, puts his helmet down and has to charge through walls to catch up with the bad guy who's yeah. escaping. And... The thing is, in in the city, there's a different species in a different planet living in a different biome in each room. Yeah. So it has to charge through, like, underwater places and rooms full of eggs and these high-tech hallways and into a garage and into, like, a marketplace. Like, all of these really weird, interesting things are going past you. And uh, the physics are slightly different in each room. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes really interesting to really watch. Stunning. And, and the design yeah. is really gorgeous as well. Yeah. Um, that's just a chase sequence. But it's great. But it's a great looking chase it's sequence. It's an incredible chase sequence. I love that chase sequence. That, that, I would put that chase sequence up against any action sequence in any Star Wars 
in the yeah, last yeah. 10 years. Well, and, and we've talked about this, how special effects don't really dazzle people anymore, so mm-hmm. they can do all these really big, impressive things in Star Wars, and you're just bored. Possibly, like, yeah, like, they're doing it wrong, yeah. yeah like I, I remember yeah. In, in The Rise of Skywalker, there's a scene where a bunch of cowboys get on space horses and ride on the exterior of a spaceship that's floating in space. Mm-hmm. It's like, this that should be awesome, and it's just not. I'm just bored. Yeah. Just waiting for this stuff to end. That that's And that's where I get into that, this is just intermission. Yeah. This is filling time. My heart isn't beating fast. I just skip to the part where you get the bad guy because that's all I really want at that point. Yeah. I'm bored. Well, I think, and I think a bad action movie, and sometimes we disagree on what those are. Yeah. But I think a bad action movie feels perfunctory mm. because it is just running through Fulfilling the paces. genre yeah. tropes. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just basically like we, we must assert the dominance of the hero. And I usually find that dull. Sometimes a movie can make it work. Uh, but yeah, I always appreciate a bit of cleverness. I, I look at an action sequence. You said, uh, uh, what, what did you say you looked at him as? Like a, like a, like an intermission. I like said, an intermission. Yeah. I look at an action sequence like a, like a tap dancing number. Hmm. It's an opportunity to show off. So show off. Yeah. Go nuts. Say what you will about the extraction movies. They have these big long waters. They're showing off. Yeah. You know? Not, not, good, not good movies, but you're showing off. Yeah, yeah. like the second one, okay, but like, yeah, they're not second great. Okay, yeah. but like, there are these incredible action sequences. That's why we're here. Dazzle us, and I will put up with a lot <laughs> in order to get there. Mm. So please dazzle us. Um, anyway, thank you for your uh, for your letter, uh, and uh, here we go. Let's go yeah, get uh, next. Here's a letter from the Gorilla Walrus Ninja. We've heard nice. from the Gorilla Walrus Ninja in the past. Mm-hmm. Greetings, Bibbs and Rockmeister McCool. Oh, that's me. Um, similar to how college football fans have lists of stadiums that claim you need to visit to be a true fan of the sport, mm-hmm. uh, I was wondering, as film critics, are there top theaters in the country oh. you believe film buffs should make an effort to see a movie in? Mm-hmm. For example, Arclight has gotten a lot of love on various film podcasts over the years, and I plan to see a movie there when I get to L.A., I have some bad news for you. Um, yeah. Do you have some favorite theaters you would recommend for film buffs to check out? Thank you, the girl in Walrus Ninja. Well, the New Beverly. Um, yeah. The, the one where I work. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's when you haven't really put in a lot of time there lately. Not recently, but, but I'm still in their employ. Still, yeah, still um, technically on the list. Uh, but yeah, that's a great movie. New Beverly Cinema is the one owned by my boss, Quentin Tarantino, yeah. and he, he does the programming, and uh, he and the managers do the programming, and uh, it's mostly double bills. It's all on film, all on 35 or 16 millimeter film. Those are the only projectors they have in the building. Uh, so yeah, you can see a lot of original old prints. Some of them are old and beaten up, but they try to get the better prints. Yeah, they get the best um, you can get. I uh, When it comes to like grindhouse nights, when you can only get like kung fu movies whose titles you don't even really know, um, <laughs> those are going to be the old beaten up prints. The wonderful yeah. thing about all those, those old kung fu movies is they would get recut with other movies. Yeah. Like a lot of American producers would get several movies, just cut a couple of them together and re-release the same films over again, save a little money. Yeah. Release it happened. with a new title. Yeah. It happened a lot. Yeah. And like, so which version do we have? Exactly. Like, who knows? You know? So um, I've, I've gotten to do a lot of investigation. So you, you will get some of the old beaten up faded prints occasionally. Yeah. Which I like, but Ooh. I know some people don't. Uh, um, call, call me old fashioned. And again, I actually, I've, I've traveled, but I haven't, done a lot of big movie theaters mm. throughout the country. So I can really only speak to Los Angeles. Um, call me old-fashioned, and the theater itself is not what it used to be. But I think you, if you have the opportunity, you should go to the Gramas Chinese. You should oh, yeah. go mill about in the front, look at all the footprints, you know? Like, how did he do all those stunts with such 
tiny feet. <laughs> the quote blazing saddles. Um, all of that's a delight, and the interior is pretty cool. The theater itself, it's not the theater it used to be. They've retrofitted it. It's a different theater. It's still a very nice theater. Yeah. There's a multiplex connected to it. The multiplex is fine. But the original classic Chinese theater is, I think, a must-see. Right. Um, I wish I liked the El Capitan. <laughs> the El Capitan it's, is a, is across the street from the Grauman's Chinese. It's beautiful in theory. <laughs> it's so attractive. It's so well maintained. They still yeah. do the thing where they'll have like a guy play like they have a an pipe organist. organ. They have an actual like, organ. Yeah. The guy's playing the, a pipe organ. It's like called in, the, the Mighty Wurlitzer. Yeah. yeah, before the movie, and then as the movie's about to begin, the pipe organ uh, descends into the floor. Yeah. Into the floor. It's really neat. <laughs> you should totally go see that. Here's my problem with that theater and. I haven't been in a bit, but it's my understanding that it hasn't changed. The seats suck. Especially, <laughs> especially, especially if you're if you a larger gentleman. Well, if you have legs, they're, yeah. they're like just really crammed in together. The seat rests are like wooden and tight and uncomfortable. And if you're a larger person like I am, like even like slightly larger person than whoever designed the El Capitan thought the average was, they are oppressively uncomfortable. Hmm. And I will go out of my way to avoid seeing movies at the El Capitan if I possibly can, just because I don't like the seats. However, if you're if you're you know on the trim side, and able-bodied, it's a nice theater. But I don't recommend yeah. it, except maybe to visit and go pretty, and then move on. Yeah, uh, a lot of my favorite theaters in LA no longer here. Yeah, uh, well, you know. Arclight is out of business. Arclight is out of business. It's, it's, it's a husk. It's, it's yeah. It's still all, there. All it's of the Arclights, um, the, being uh, reclaimed by nature. Yeah, the Cinerama Dome is still boarded up. Um, yeah. I think the last movie I saw in the Cinerama Dome was the Santa Claus back in 1994. Uh, it's been a while since I, I got I've into the dome. I've only seen one movie in the actual Cinerama Dome. Oh, yeah. It was Godzilla in 1998. See, so we saw, like, shitty movies. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> There, the airplane was a great theater, though. I missed yeah, the airplane. I hope was, it comes back. Um, it's still possible. It's kind of a, it was shut down because it was run by some pretty monstrous people. But the Cine Family at oh. the Silent Movie Theater here in LA yeah. uh, had some of the best programming you would ever encounter just yeah. anywhere in the world. And those programmers um, were not all like the shitty people. They were wonderful no, people the, who programmed there who got screwed over by the assholes. Yeah, the, the assholes just happened to be higher up. So when yeah. they were ousted, the whole yeah. theater it, shut down. It was a tiny um, theater. They had some couches at the front, which was really really nice. Mm. And they had what they what was really cool is they had a backyard area where they would serve drinks at intermission and sometimes they would have parties there and like mm. you know hot dogs or nail painting stations if like for a Dolly Parton night or something ah mm. oh, that was it, it was it was really fucking a, monsters ran it man but that was a nice it, theater. it was a really glorious place yeah. um, one of my favorite things and this is something by uh, that was suggested by one of the not monstrous people mm. uh, Brett Berg it was one of the he- the mm. head honchos and he was a very kind man mm. uh he was the co-inventor of the five minutes game, uh, which great, they would which they would do routine. twice a year. I think they did it Labor Day and Memorial Day, and um, yeah, the, it was based on the theory that every film you watch, any film you watch, is going mm. to be at least interesting for the first five minutes, while you're still kind of lowering yourself into the the world of the film and yeah. getting used to what these things are, the pacing and the tone of everyone it. gives um, a movie f- five minutes to to get them. Yeah, the first and, five uh, minutes. Can you get me? Can you intrigue so they, me, uh, you know? They scour the planet for, like, the most obscure garbage you could ever hope to find. Mm-hmm. And they show the first five minutes of maybe 30 movies. I don't think it was, it was 30. It was, I think it was, it, was, it was like 15 or 20. 15, 20. It was, it yeah. was a, a bunch of movies. Yeah. 
and you watch the first five minutes of each, and uh, then you're given a ballot, and you vote for which one you want to watch the whole of, and that's the film you watch. Yeah, so so it's, a, so, it's a, so it's like a double feature. The first part is the first five minutes of yeah, all which, the movies. Which is about the length of a feature, is watching all the clips. Everyone turns on their ballots, and while they're counting the ballots, everyone, you know, there's a barbecue out back, everyone's just hanging out, smoking weed openly, even before that was like... Legal in California. Entirely legal, like, it was totally fine. And um, and then, yeah, and then you would go in and watch whatever movie you want. Yeah. It was a hoot. There's um, many cinemas I would love to visit. Sure. I know there's a film festival... I don't think it happens anymore, but it's uh, the theater is in a carved out ice castle. Uh, I'd love to see that. Um, That's exciting. There's a famous, uh, I don't know the name of it, but it's a famous Bollywood theater in Jaipur mm. uh, that shows just you know the biggest, mm. like most spectacular uh, Bollywood pictures on the biggest screen imaginable. Mm. I'd love to go to the Kino International in Berlin. Um, there's one in Iceland I've heard is really quite good. Mm. Um Oh, the Uplink X in Tokyo. Mm. Just uh, all of these film. Well, and you're a projectionist, so you yeah. like hear the stories. Like yeah. you, you know all this. Th- I, I'm gonna actually. Uh, there's there's, yeah. there's one in Texas mm. that it's actually spread around now. Mm. Used to be the really Alamo. novel. The, the the Alamo Draft House. Yeah. The idea that you could go in and there's a table in front of you and you could like eat tater tots and drink beer and kind of mm-hmm. speak openly at, at a movie. That's been done now. It's like it's kind of an old now, practice yeah. now, but uh, yeah, at the time that was considered really, really good. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw this out actually because I want to hear from anybody. Oh, in the listen- Castro, the Castro, yes, in San Francisco, yes, absolutely. I want to throw this out from anybody who, I again, y- y- we know that our listeners are spread out all throughout the world. Hmm. Uh, we we can actually see <laughs> where they're downloaded. We know you're everywhere. Uh, I want to hear from you, and I want to hear if anyone has. Especially like a local place, not like we have a really good AMC theaters near us. Like hmm. if you have a cool but, but local we come place, to that place for magic. If you have a cool local place, <laughs> something that has like maybe a history to it, or a really cool sense of style, or something that makes it really special, uh, and you want to tell the world about it, and you want to share, send us an email. Hmm. Let us know. Like I'm very very curious. I want to hear if there are any tales. Of unique or spectacular or treasured movie theaters, wherever you are or wherever you have been. And I would love to hear those stories and I would love to spread the word, especially if they're still around, even if they're not. I'd love to spread the word. Yeah. So, again, our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. Uh, send us a word. I would love to spread this because this is a fun topic of conversation. And sadly, you know, I've been to film festivals here and there and everywhere, but Mm. I have not been able to just go around the world seeing cool movie theaters. And now that's something I kind of want to (laughs) do. I hadn't thought of that before, but now I want to do that. Yeah, make it a pilgrimage. I like it. Oh, oh, and of course, uh, I want to see a movie uh, on Bergman Island. The Far- okay. Faro Island, where that's, you can you can go cool, yeah. take the Bergman tour and stay in the Bergman houses and read Bergman's books and watch <laughs> theaters in Bergman's cinema. It's an actual thing. There was a they really, made a movie about it. Yeah, they made a movie called Bergman Island a couple of years ago, uh, and the main couple it's it's an English language film. The main couple goes into uh, the Bergman theaters. Like, well, you're here, you're you're lovers of cinema and lovers of art, and this big Bergman, arguably the greatest filmmaker to have ever lived. And uh, what what movies are you going to watch? And they're just sort of like looking at Bergman's filmography, it's like, these are all really depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Bergman didn't really make, like, upbeat I guess comedies. Smiles of a Summer Night, but that's about it. Smiles of a Summer Night, I was always told, was like Bergman's one comedy. Like, uh-huh. it's that's the one where he's going to be light and fun. He's actually made some pretty light movies. Watch The Magic Flute sometime. Mm-hmm. But, uh, like, 
okay, it's about a couple who's getting ready to go to the opera, mm-hmm. and they're not speaking to each other, and they're very stone-faced. Trouble in their relationship. Got it. And they get to the opera, and they're very well-dressed, and they're stuffed up, and they're not touching each other, and they're staring at the opera, and then the wife just bursts into tears out of nowhere. It's like, this is the fucking comedy thing? <laughs> Like, it lightens up after that, but jeez, it's pretty grim opening. It's a hell of a five minutes game. You'll be very surprised yeah, by where it goes after that. Anyway, are we moving on? Yeah, we'll Let's move, move on. on. Um, here's a letter from Blaze Thunder Crash. Ooh, Excuse good me. Name. Blaze Thunder Clash. Ooh. Um, Both nice. Yeah, ho- however you sign off, that's how I'm going to read your letter. So, uh, gentle beings, we can all agree that censorship is deplorable, mm. and I am not in any way endorsing it in the nature of my question. Think more along the lines of, the projectionist has the final edit. That's that's an old adage, you know, yeah. who, who has final cut on every movie? The projectionist has final cut on every movie. Yeah, they get to decide um, what's, what, what gets shown and how it gets shown. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to run your reel upside down. What the fuck yeah. do you think about I'm that? I'm going to unscrew the light bulb a little bit so no one can see shit. Fuck you. Well, first of all, it's not you're just screwed it. It's big I like to just let me have the image. All right, okay. Fine. Um, what is a movie you'd like to have final edit or add to or remove a scene that you think feel would improve the overall film? Mm. My answer is removing the superfluous scene where Dan Aykroyd receives oral sex from a wraith in Ghostbusters. <laughs> oh god, that was supposed to be a whole sequence. I, I, that yeah, wasn't I, supposed I, to be like a little bit in a montage. That was a whole bit they shot. <laughs> Glad, glad we only got as much as we did. Yeah. Uh, in closing, please add my name to the list of folks who lament the hiatus of Cancel Too Soon. Cancel Too Soon was how I originally found you two and introduced me to the gift that is the animated Spider-Woman TV series. Yay! Cheers, Blaze Thunder Clash. Um, yeah, we've said before, uh, mm. Cancel Too Soon is something we, still dear to our hearts and we still yeah. would like to do it. It's just finding time is very difficult. Yeah, it's so a, we've it's been a very time-intensive uh, show. Devoting our podcasts yeah. to things that take less research, quite frankly. Um, yeah. But it's not something we, we're actively abandoning it's just no. not something we've had the time to do it's on it's on, um, it's on hiatus for mm, the time being yeah that's all yeah uh but uh films that i would like to trim well, a little the, the one that i think a lot of people would agree with me with uh is um taking the psychiatrist out of psycho there's the scene at the mm-hmm, very end yeah. where it just goes on and on, where it's all of this exposition as to what's going on and what happened in Norman Bates' mind, and just kind of explains the whole plot and psychology of it. It's totally superfluous, brings the film to a dead halt. It doesn't add anything. Mm. Uh, we have the story. We know what's going on. It's been communicated to us already. Yeah. So I, cutting that sequence is, is a pretty, that's a pretty famous uh, editing exercise. I actually defend that sequence. Not that it works, really. But I understand What's his why name? it's o- o- Paul Oaken, the, the Paul Oaken, Oakenfield. Oakenfield? No, who who played this? The shrink? it was Oaken something. Yeah, yeah. Let me look up the name of the. He shrink. was in yeah. every TV show in the seventies. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was in the first season of Murder She Wrote even. Um, but uh, I think that scene in Psycho is there because a lot of the things that they're discussing in Psycho, those psychiatric conditions, which they didn't really know what they were talking about, but they did what they had at the time. Um, those were not common knowledge and movie cliches the way they are today. Simon Oakland. Simon Oakland. So close. Uh, Those were not common knowledge. They're common knowledge today, thanks largely to Psycho and the movies that ripped off Psycho. But at the time, that's there for a reason, and I don't really want to remove that because I feel like that's removing like a weird thing that only exists because of the history. Hmm. Um, Recently, uh, I think we've even said this uh, pretty recently, uh, this is going to sound like total sacrilege to some people, and mm-hmm. even I admit that it kind of is. Uh-huh. Because I'm talking about a director's cut. 
I want to take the nightmare sequence out of the Snyder Cut. <laughs> oh, you mean at the very end? The very end, because the, the Snyder Cut, it's the it's the same basic plot as the theatrical version of Justice League, but there's a lot, a lot of things happen very, very differently. There's a lot better character development in it. The first hour and a half is really padded. I think you could cut a lot out of there. Mm. But if I only get to make one major cut, the movie ends very satisfactorily. I really genuinely like the majority of that movie. And then Bruce Wayne has a prophetic vision of the future. And it's a future I have absolutely no interest in ever seeing. Like he meets the with Joker. A, with and a terrible and, damn scene with the Joker. Yeah. That's just it, it reads like I wrote it when I was 12. Nice. Like it's just really juvenile and not very well thought out. And frankly, it's it's... I think it's at odds with the film because the film is saying after everything we've went through, the Justice League, these bastions of heroism are mm. finally together and the DC universe has overcome the the harrowing uh, 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 problems of the real world and now they are here. They're here properly and then immediately we're going to tell you we're going Superman, right back into yeah, emo town. Superman is dead and yeah. Yeah, something, something weird is going it just on. Gets, yeah. It just gets adolescent again like really mm. fast and I'm like, I don't want that. <laughs> Maybe in the future you could do that but at the end of this movie it just no. doesn't work for oh, me. Here, Here's a fun edit I would do from a mm. Star Wars movie. Okay. In Star Wars The Last Jedi which is maybe my second favorite of the Star Wars movies. Oh, it's my top uh, two or three, after, yeah. After the first Star Wars. Yeah. Um, there's a scene near the end where uh, mm. the the evil uh, evil Lord Snoke, the, like the Emperor mm. of that movie, saying to the Darth Vader of that movie, Kylo Ren, like, "Hey, you need to use your lightsaber and kill this young girl in front of me. <laughs> I'm evil, and we'll take over the world and be evil together." Mm. And he's having second thoughts. He's been having like mm. psychic visions with Ray throughout the movie, and so he turns on Snoke and he yeah. cuts him in half. And Great scene. the guards all attack them and they fight them off. And then he just says, the Rebels and the Empire are all total bullshit. This Star Wars stuff is getting old. Why don't we just team up and it'll just be the two of us? And he reaches his hand out to her. And she kind of looks at it and she's tempted for a minute. And like, that's the ending. Cut it right there. That's the roll that credits. Would, I would have said this. Uh, <laughs> there, there are things that I missed from that ending, but I actually well, think it's neat that that would be like an interesting symmetry with the ending of, the, of Force Awakens. Yeah, just, where first, she's handing Luke the lightsaber. Yeah, first of all, that movie's too long anyway, so just cut off <laughs> all of really that stuff. It's really fucking long. I'll and, uh, and all of that stuff in the second one where they, they're blowing up the ship Armada and they're just yeah. winnowing down the rebels, that could be the third movie. True, true. That's the That's last fair. part of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, you know, how does it end? It's like, well, you know, the rebels have been defeated. The Empire's mm. kind of not really anything anymore. Mm. The war is over, but it's kind of sad because everybody's dead. But there's still, like, the, the powers of the Force are still sort of, like, floating out there. Because a little yeah. kid also has it. Hmm. Just end the series there. We didn't need this other I know. force dyads and you know oh, cliched storytelling Dude, and all the rest of that stuff. I really don't care for Rise of Skywalker. I, yeah. we're all on the same page on that. I don't know a lot of people. I know some people you who like made, it you fine, made, but I don't know anyone who loves. Could that have made movie. the Last Jedi into yeah. two movies and yeah. would have paced two good paced movies, yeah. not one overstuffed one. I still think it's weird that that so much of that series takes place over the course of like a weekend, like two whole <laughs> movies just kind of like bleed in together. Like there's like a couple of year gap. Mm. between A New Hope and Empire. And I think there's mm. like a one-year gap between Empire and Jedi. So, and so yeah, some, so like, some time has passed. Some time has passed, and in between movies, you get the impression that the characters have grown together and, you know, been through more, and it just makes the whole thing feel kind of large and epic. Mm. But, like, no time passes between Force Awakens and Last Jedi. Uh. And 
it just doesn't feel like we came very far. It doesn't <laughs> oh, feel yeah. like Lord of the Rings epic, you know? Here's something I wanted to do, and, and this is also yeah. kind of heretical for the mm. for the superhero. Oh, film. I just um, thought of one, but okay, yeah. Um, in in the movie Avengers Endgame, they yeah. figure out, hey, we can go like we can use this time travel thing and go back in time and get magic rocks that will save the day. And there's this extended sequence where we see where each character went in history and what they do to retrieve the the rocks and yeah. and you know people die in the past sure. and they come back to the present. They have to travel back even further into the past. You want to skip all that to show them all come back? I want to see like <laughs> zip they vanish, pop they're back. That quick, one character's dead. What happened to that character? She died. Like just <laughs> dramatic things happened. We don't get to see them. Yeah. That would have been like so much more satisfying to me than just seeing all that. I shit. would love to see the Whitney Seibold cut because you could do that really easily. Oh, I'm sure. That'd be very yeah. funny. I, I had a similar one. This is something we talked about before. Uh, I want to take uh, the Hobbit, the Battle of the Five Armies, oh, God. and cut the Battle of the Five Armies, which is how it is in the book. It is how it is in the book. In the book, the Hobbit ends mm. with uh, Thorin Oakenshield. Uh, that's where I was thinking of his name. Uh, oh, so, that's why I was thinking. Si- that's why I got the wrong name. Yeah, Simon uh, Oakley was the yeah. guy we were ta- thinking about. Uh, but um, uh, at the end of the, of the Hobbit, uh, Thorin gets all of his treasure in the mound, and then everybody they've met comes in with a claim on their gold, some more reasonable than others. Mm. And Thorin's like, no, fuck you. We go to war now. And the Hobbit's like, that's fucking stupid. Uh-huh. There's enough gold to give to like everyone on the planet. Just give them the gold. Who cares? And, <laughs> and, and the, the yeah. hubris comes the day and everyone like sort of devolves into like this, this like Scrooge McDuck with gold fever. Mm. And they all, five armies amass and they're all going to kill each other. And in the movie... The, the live action movie uh, it's like the last hour of the movie yeah, is just, just people on, on, killing on, on. each other in most absurd fucking ways and sometimes that can be fun but here it misses the point because in the book the armies come together people start to fight and Bilbo, Bilbo hits Bilbo his head off, yeah. Bilbo hits his head and wakes up having missed the entire thing uh-huh. and what he and what everyone who has survived most people didn't everyone who has survived says that was the stupidest thing ever, and we should have listened to Bilbo. Yeah, yeah. War is stupid and not fun, and not something that we should be like glorifying well, by it? by showing it being badass. In fact, so I just want to like know, uh... just as soon as the Battle of Five Armies starts, boom, Bilbo hits his head. We're out. Yeah, yeah. We just cut to the end. That's the point. Uh, in, You're going to have to live um... with that audience. It wasn't so. I don't know. I'm not a Tolkien scholar. I'm sure there are a lot of people sure. know more about J.R.R. Tolkien than me. But from what I understand, he was he was a soldier in World War One. He was in World War One. He hated and, it. And he, it and he, yeah, he fought and he hated it so much that he was sort of like all his literature after that is about pacifism. No, the about hobbits the are this. The war. hobbits are an idealized mm. version of like his like pastoral British society where all we want to do. Is is cakes cakes and and, and drink beer and smoke pot and relax and just not fight anybody. And everyone's like, no, we should fight. And the hobbits get dragged into it because, of course, they fucking do. But yeah, that's what it's about. It's an anti war story at heart. It's a little hypocritical at times, as a lot of anti war stories can be, but still. I, uh,. I haven't read The Lord of the Rings, but I have read The Hobbit. I'm yeah. a big fan of the book of The read Hobbit. Read The Hobbit many and, times. And uh, I'm also a big fan of the 1977 movie of The Hobbit, the it's animated so film. It uh, and keeps the entire story in, and it's d- less than 90 minutes long. And it has that pastoral feeling. Yeah. There, there's a bit where, um, I think it's Gandalf's, like, ho- Bilbo's like, I- I'm feeling really terrible about everything, and I'm not used to traveling, and I'm just miserable. And they say, think of pleasant things, and we hear his thought process. He says... Mm. 
eggs and bacon, a good full pipe, my garden at twilight, cakes. Yeah. Like, that's it. And yeah. there's just something so simple, simple about things. that. Yeah. Simple things. Yeah. Life doesn't have to be so full of horror. Mm. Um, so that's that's definitely one. Oh, I would, it oh, would piss and, a lot of people off, but I do. And that. we've complained about it, but the the last twenty seconds of Nymphomaniac. The, Basically, the, the, yeah. as soon as Stellan Skarsgård leaves the room, fade out, uh, fade out, and, and we're good. Yeah. We don't need the rest of that fucking movie. <laughs> oh my god, is it ruined? Because it's a good it movie. That ruins way, yeah. the entire thing. It's and, so. And it's a five weird. hour film. He waited yeah, through man. all that. Yeah. I know, I know, I know. We've said it many it's times, there. but it's still true. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I hope that helps. Uh, here's, here's another letter from CW. Hi. Not from the CW, just CW. Oh. Um, uh, w squared, how it's addressed. Um, Love it. Just wanted to leave a note uh, that the time the time thing includes, this is a Star Trek question. Mm. Uh, we just, we recently talked about the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Clues. Uh, mm. And there was what we thought was a, a, a bit plot of a, error. Bit of a plot hole. Because there were 24 hours that uh, would be missing by the time they met up with another ship. Yeah, well, ba- the, the basic plot of the episode is um, the Enterprise discovers something, and in order to do the right thing, they all have to have their memories erased and act like only 30 seconds has passed when actuality a day or possibly two days have passed. And they change, like, the clocks on the ship and everything so that they'll never question it. But the problem is that eventually, we theorized, they're going to run into another starbase or some other ship, and they're going to notice... Like, oh, we thought we were supposed to be here Tuesday. And they're like, it's Thursday, you jerks. Yeah. Somewhere down the line, that's going to create a, at least a minor issue, and they're going to be curious as to what the hell mm-hmm. happened. But we have a theory. But he says, um, I'll leave a note about the time thing in Clues is not a plot hole. Wormholes in Star Trek can connect time and space. Okay. Well, they might only experience 30 seconds, it's easy to explain that the ship jumped several days relative to the rest of the universe. Various spatial phenomena mm. affecting uh, time is one of the ideas that uh, why star dates are used in the first place. Okay. Um, the wormhole time thing is actually hinted at in the episode and it would be easily explained, especially since this was an unstable wormhole. And here there's actually a snippet of dialogue here. Uh, data says, no, sir, my positronic system is immune to the effect. This is what, this is the very end, like the right. actual epilogue. Um, this is the third unstable wormhole I have passed through during my time with Starfleet. The first was aboard the USS Trieste. Picard. Thank you, Mr. Data. Well, where the hell are we? Riker. Uh, 0.54 parsecs from our original position. Almost a day's travel in just 30 seconds. Data says, Sir, I should realign the ship's clock with Starbase 410 subspace signal Uh, to adjust for the time distortion. You know what? Fair enough. And Picard says, Proceed. And Data says, Yes, Captain. You know what? Fair enough. We missed a detail. We were totally wrong. You were totally right. (laughs) Thank you for writing in. Hmm. That clears that up. I like that episode. And now I like it a little bit more because what I thought was a plot hole was indeed covered in the text. Great. Hmm. Very happy. If you don't know what the hell we're talking about, <laughs> we have a Star Trek podcast. It's on our Patreon page. It's called All Our Yesterdays. Uh, and we are approaching 200 episodes of that bad boy. <laughs> and uh, we've gone through the entire original series, the first five movies, and we're halfway through season four of Next Generation. We just did an episode all about the episode Clues. Uh, it's not talked about a lot, but it's a really good episode, and yeah. uh, we have some other. We have another really good episode coming up soon. Actually, I'm excited to talk. <laughs> okay, about it. yeah, I, I like it too. I like it. Yeah. Um, uh, this is from, and this is how they actually signed off the letter. Mm. They didn't include a name in this email, but I'll just call this person Herkimer because I'm feeling saucy. <laughs> but normally, we won't give a name unless you include it. <laughs> nice. So this is from Herkimer, I suppose. Nice. Um, Herkimer says, uh, "I had a brief conversation with Professor McCool on the Twitters." 
That's that's me, Professor McCool. Yes. Uh, uh, where they said, someday someone will have the intense nostalgia for mumblecore movies of the mid-2000s and it will break my brain. <laughs> uh, I can be saucy on Twitter. Um, I recounted a time when I would listen enthusiastically to Mr. Bungle and when trying to share that love, I would be met with either disgust or worse indifference. Listen to Mr. Bungle's first album. It's it's a revolting carnival of joy. It yeah. is so good. Um I recounted a time when I listened to Mr. Bungle. Um, years later, Mr. Bungle had gained in popularity, and though I wouldn't say they're a household name, they're certainly more popular than they once were, at least in my circles anyway. Um, There's a whole group of people who just love everything Mike Patton does. Yeah, Mr. Bungle is one of the many Mike Patton projects. So yeah. I was got about to say, I think Mike Patton, like in the, the 80s, he took over for uh, the lead singer Faith No More. Yeah, and when he did, Faith No More became huge. Yeah, Faith No More. That's Faith No More, that the, the third album, the real yeah. thing, because uh, they put out yeah. We Care a Lot, and then they put out Introduce Yourself, which are fine. Yeah. Uh, we Care a Lot is is an unsaleable punk hit. Yeah, um, but then they put out the real thing. I think eighty eighty nine. I think around eighty nine, um, and, and that's it, a fucking phenomenal that, album. That's a banger of an album. That Everything has, on that, that album is epic great. and yeah. uh, Surprise, You're Dead and Zombie Eaters yeah. and uh, Strolling Out of the World. There's a lot yeah. of great songs on there, uh, and then they. Mike Patton, because he's Mike Patton, didn't want to stay with one sound. No. So the next, the next like couple of records all sound like they came from completely different bands, and they're all like kind of unlistenable, like by, <laughs> by, by, by design. Same with Mr. Bungle. Mr. Bungle is meant to be like re- deliberately repellent. One of those, the tracks opens with the sound effects of just somebody somebody pooping on the toilet. So you get to hear poop noises. That's on the record. They sold that in record stores. It's like tried to be a mainstream hit. Yeah. Um, so I think because Mike Patton has grown, Mr. Bungle has sort of grown in estimation as well. Yeah. Mike Patton was the voice of the vampires in I Am Legend. Was he really? Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Mike Patton's got one of the great voices. Yeah, Mike Patton, really does. Mike Patton one of the great kook, fucking I admire voices. that. Yeah, I love, love um, everything he's done. Uh, Admiral McCool threw out a few examples of this as, as of this writing, Mumblecore movies and Devo, but I think there's a conversation to be had about art that doesn't immediately find its audience and the joy it brings to those who have followed it once it finally has. Mm. Uh, so now to the question you two can get into, what are some things that you passionately carried a torch for, uh, music, movies, books, whatever, that eventually found its way into popular culture? And mm. what are your overall thoughts on this phenomenon? Also, what are some things that you carried a torch for that have not caught on and largely disappeared from even uh, the few most dying hard fans back in the day mm. uh there, there's this one band in particular i like called araya a-r-r-a-y-a that i loved but completely forgot about until a few years ago that i thankfully found on youtube uh there's a link below uh, but i'm sure there are many more that unless prompted would be lost forever into the recesses of my dwindling brain that's sad to consider but uh it happens i suppose thanks for reading and i look forward to your thoughts on this uh yeah so we're talking about um <sighs> There's this really unfortunate tendency in the entertainment industry to only give a shit about immediate success. If you release an um, album or a movie mm. or a TV show and it gets big ratings or big numbers right off the bat, you think, great, that's a hit, boom. Mm. We sometimes forget that when things are left out to be enjoyed, mm. eventually people find them. That doesn't yeah. always happen, but it mm. can, and yeah. it does. Yeah. And, and it's it's a wonderful life is maybe the ultimate example of this. Yeah, which was was a bomb when it was first released, but thanks to repeated plays on TV, yeah. it gained an audience many like, years later. Like the late seventies to the eighties is when that movie finally found like thirty years had passed yeah, before yeah. it finally found an appreciative audience. Well, you can even say that for Star Trek. It was cancelled after three sure. seasons. It wasn't until it was in syndication that people yeah. found it. A, a Christmas uh, story, going back to Christmas movies as well, not a hit when it came out. Oh, wasn't but it? Uh, not not uh, really. No, I mean they're okay, but like 
it wasn't until it was like on TV constantly yeah. that it became a big deal. Yeah, there, there's yeah. also a tendency for um, certain media, certain art, to um, be followed by a very particular cadre. Mm-hmm. And 20 years on, even if they're dismissed by whatever, critics, other fans, the intelligentsia, mm-hmm. uh, many years later, those people still love that movie. Yeah. They grow up still loving that movie. And that's when they start writing essays about that movie. Oh no, this yeah. trashy movie you hate it. It's actually really good. Yeah. Because I've been watching it for years and I am passionate about it and I have something to say. It, it's not that all of a sudden everyone likes that movie. Mm. It's that after the when the movie first comes out and it's novel, everyone's going to talk about it whether they liked it or not. After a few years, even just a couple years, mm. the people who didn't like it don't want to talk about it anymore. They're done unless it's like part of a huge franchise and it keeps coming up constantly yeah only the people who really like the movie tend to be the ones who want to talk about it and if there are enough of them it seems like well i guess that was a pretty good movie i guess i should see halloween three season of the witch i'd heard it was bad Hmm. but nowadays people only seem to bring it up because they like it and then you give that movie a chance and it's not necessarily that Everyone now likes the movie. It's just that instead of like the people who like the movie stepping forward, everyone who didn't like the movie just stepped back because they don't give a shit anymore. Yeah. And they haven't bothered to rewatch a, it in a while. They don't have nothing. They have no passionate feelings one way or another. Something curious happens, and I'm, I'm old enough to have seen this sort of play itself out, mm. where a, a piece of pop media will come out, yeah. and and it's trash. It's trash a lot of it pop, is. It's trash pop media. But the yeah. thing about trash pop media is. It comes from an unconstructed place, and uh, by that I mean it's it's less guarded by the fineries of high art and a little bit more honest to the fabric of society at the time. Um, I, I pointed to something like Hot Springs Hotel uh, as, as an example of this. If you want to see how people dressed in 1997, don't watch a film made in 1997. Mm-hmm. Those are made by artists who are concerned about the aesthetics and the looks and the costumes. They want to push what things they, uh, forward. They're not they're just looking, grabbing the clothes out of people's closets. Yeah, they're, they're looking to create a look for that film. That's yeah. the style of films of the 19 of 1997 if you want to watch how people actually dressed see garbage like hot springs hotel where they literally just pulled costumes out of their own closet yeah it's very few people dressed like Cher did in clueless yeah yeah it looked great but very few people actually dressed like that but that is costume it's not the way the 90s look exactly um so here's something i would like to coin put this on a t-shirt trash plus time equals culture uh, we I'm will, not gonna fight that. we like will that start actually. to see that a lot of the things that were once dismissed as trash art and perhaps still are trash art contain enough honesty about society at the time mm. that it's going to, re- in 20, 30, 40 years time, it's going to reveal more about where the world was than the high art that was being made at the time. Yeah. You can see this happening with comic books. Comic books is trash art, right? Yeah. And yet, well, and, it's a bit harsh. But well, okay. but you say that now. Well, that's a bit harsh. There were people who wouldn't think that was harsh at one point. Even the people yeah. who made it would say that. I, would I, be a bit harsh. I realize that. Um, fair enough. I don't have to now, agree with them, but fair enough. But yeah, you, you fast forward to like maybe I think in the '80s was when I first started seeing like essays about comic books as an art form. It was around that than time just we started a, getting a pop uh, ephemera. Well, we started getting more uh, mm. critically acclaimed comics in the '80s, or at least mm. started getting more notice, like, like Mouse uh, and yeah, Mouse, kind of American stuff, Splendor. Yeah. Uh, Sandman, Watchmen, the underground comics. But yeah, but again, yeah. look at those underground comics with an X. Yeah, that was like naughty stuff. 
Yeah. That, that was the, Theoretically, the, the yeah. trashy underground stuff, and yet that was the most critically acclaimed now. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's interesting. So uh, I, I feel like um, when something event, when kind of like starts on the fringe and eventually enters the mainstream, there's something upsetting about that if you are a fan of it, because mm-hmm. you're probably drawn to it because it's not in the mainstream, and then when it enters the mainstream, it loses a little bit of its charm. I don't think everyone thinks that way now. I think that was our generation who wanted to be on the edge, who wanted true, to not be in the mainstream. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, well, if they like something on the edge, would at least theoretically, yeah. would want it to be in the mainstream because then it's popular, everyone likes it, no, they, popular they, they, for having well, then, liked then it. Then they're validated in some way. It's, um, a, it's a personal validation thing. I don't think it's necessarily healthy, but you know, neither and, necessarily and that, is always yeah, going to be on the fringe. Yes, but okay. you, could, you could look at Gen X, and Gen X is like, yeah. no, I want to be on the outside. And then you, yeah. millennials are like, no, we want to be on the inside. It was yeah. very polar opposite in that way. Um, but yeah, but thinking of something like punk. Sure. You know, punk rock is good when it's like five assholes in a bar that'll hit you with a bottle for coming in late. Uh, not so much fun when it's like playing over the credits of your favorite movie because some yeah. studio bought it now. Like not like all of the songs on the mm. soundtrack to Cruella mm. are great songs. Uh-huh. When you put them in the soundtrack to Cruella, they stop <laughs> being great songs. Those songs. It really uh, cheapens them, at least in that context. Yeah, and I, in, in the context in which they were written, yeah. great songs. In the context of that movie where they're trying to take a punk aesthetic hmm. and shine it up and sell it to kids in that Radio Disney kind of way, it stops being cool. Remember when there was a fashion show and they sang, I want to be your dog? <laughs> that's because she was in that dog movie. She yeah, was in the dog movie, you guys. That's that's what Iggy Pop wanted. That's exactly what Iggy Pop meant. You know what? If Iggy Pop was in that movie and he just punched Cruella in the fucking face, I'd love that. That'd be awesome. No, Iggy Pop's a little too cuddly for that. Which is a weird thing to say about a a man made of bone and leather. I'm waiting for people to get back into, like, period drama movies again. I Mm. want, like, a Merchant Ivory type movie to come out now and make $200 million. Like like Room with a View. We're all going to go back to Room with a View Mm. and that era and just well, the, keep watching. Make that uh, a thing. Last year we had like three high-profile celebrity-lined murder mysteries in a row. That's right. Uh, I came back. They weren't all great, but I like mm. that idea that that's going to be our next we're pushing it. It making genre. We're pushing it. I and, love and that. And Brahma's making another. He's, he's got a Halloween movie coming out. Yeah, it's it's a Poirot Halloween movie. It's I, I, ha- it's, oh, I forgot the name of the original yeah, story, like but the, the movie's called A Haunting in Venice. But yeah. uh, the original have, story is a thing called like a murder for Halloween or something like that. I'm very, very excited because that's the first Kenneth Branagh Poirot movie Mm -hmm. that is based on a story I don't know. Oh, I haven't read that one. I haven't seen it adapted before. I don't know that one. So I can actually go in not knowing who done it and and see if I can guess. And I love that that Branagh's going back because he's like, okay, I'm going to make Murder on the Orient Express, which I love, by the way. His version of Murder on the Orient Express is grass. Quite solid. Uh, But it has Johnny Depp in it. I know a lot of people have an issue with Johnny Depp. Well, he's the murder victim. He's the victim. So he's not in it very much. Uh, and and then he made Death on the Nile, which he clearly shot during COVID lockdowns. It's an ugly it's got, movie to look at. It's got problems. Uh, I still mostly like it. It's but mostly it's got like after the murder happens and it's all on the ship and it's all mm. investigation, then it's good. Very but tight. Everything yeah. up to that point is just a mess. A little shabby. Um, but that has Army Hammer in it, and a lot of people have an issue with Army <laughs> I Hammer. I forgot about that. So oh no, he, he wants hunting. He, he wants to make a Poirot movie without a problematic actor. Oh god, in it. I'm, I'm looking at the cast for Hunting in Venice. Who's going to be the one who fails him? 
Okay, hold on again. Okay, but you better not be Michelle Yeoh. Um, <laughs> see, it, I, shit, I don't even know half the people in this movie. Well, good. Uh, casting his buddies this time. There you go. I, Kyle Allen, don't know. Uh, Jamie Dornan's in it. I like Jamie uh, Dornan. I hope I hope he doesn't do anything stupid. Oh, <laughs> Tina, Tina Fey is in that. That's gonna be cute. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Kelly Riley. I like Kelly Riley a lot. I like Kelly Riley too. Yeah. Okay. I, it's interesting because it's unless they're like cast members that aren't like listed on Wikipedia, mm. it's less of an all star shenanigan uh, than the previous ones. It's not like we're gonna get. 80 well, people that the audience knows. It's more like a half dozen. Yeah, ja- so. uh, Jamie Dornan. Oh, Jamie Dornan played Brenna's dad in Belfast. So they've worked together. Before. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you got yeah. Jamie Dornan, you got Tina Fey, you got Michelle Yeoh, and then a bunch of actors who you probably might recognize, if, but if don't necessarily big names. Yeah. If, if he's like working with a smaller budget this time, maybe, maybe, maybe that'd be good. Maybe. Be hey, I hope so. I'm, yeah. I'm down. <laughs> it was based on the story so, um, of the Halloween party. The Halloween party. That was yeah. it. Um, yeah. I, uh, I hope that's our next thing. We've we've done yeah. special effects based action blockbusters for long enough. It's been interesting watching the superhero genre just contract over the last couple of years. People yeah. seem less excited. Yeah, they're it's, still it's, hits. The Spider Mans yeah, yeah. are still the hits. Guardians and, did fine. Yeah, it's just they're not guaranteed hits. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the thing. I think when you can't just get people into a theater just because. You're part of the zeitgeist. Mm. That's when you know the zeitgeist is not necessarily ever going to go away entirely, but there's room for something else now. And I'm telling you, my prediction is coming true. Morbius was the turning point. I don't disagree. Morbius was where everything started to shift. I think it's going (laughs) to... I think here's the question. Is anyone going to see Kraven the Hunter? Oh, fuck no. Nobody cares about (laughs) Kraven the Hunter. You know who directed Kraven the Hunter? Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenn. Who was it? <laughs> I'd love to see the Dardennes do That would be awesome. The J.C. Chandor. No kidding. The Margin Call and All is Lost. Oh. Yeah. No, they were just yeah. sort of sucked up into the I, If you machine. told me Mick G directed that movie based on that trailer, I'd be like, I believe you. Yeah, I, that's no that's slight. It's yeah. just he makes very different movies than J.C. Cra- Chandler. Craven the Hunter, there's Madame Webb is coming Madame out. Madame Webb is getting which, which has like the most attractive cast of the world. It's like Dakota Johnson and Sidney yeah. Sweeney and Adam Scott. Like all these really attractive people. I mean, I like attractive and, uh, people. And uh, no objection. Sidney Sweeney plays Spider-Woman. It's like, okay, yes, please. And... Uh, <laughs> About time we get a Spider Woman, actually. Un- un- kind of a big deal in the comics. Well, well I mean, we had a bunch in, in the. We just had a bunch in the Spider. Well, that's uh, that's Spider-Man true. I think we had Spider-verse a version of Jessica movie, yeah. Drew, but like the old classic version of Jessica Drew. Oh, we haven't really had outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah we haven't really had that. Uh, and um, I, I only learned about this movie today because it was canceled. Oh yeah, but they were going to do a film called El Muerto. Yes, and El Mu- El Muerto is a Marvel character I had no idea existed. No, I don't think I knew El Muerto either. El Muerto put on an enchanted luchador mask yes. and gained superpowers and was a superhero luchador. Yep. Why the fuck was this not the movie that was made instead of Iron Man? Like back in the day, that should have been the start of everything. I, was I El don't. Muerto and they can't and um, uh, Bad Bunny, the, the Puerto Rican DJ, yes. was gonna play El Muerto. Bless uh, him. But the it was taken off of the, the yeah. studio. Well, schedule. because um, right now everything is in flux because of the of the strikes. Strike, yeah, yeah. WGA is on strike. The Directors Guild might not go on strike. There's a lot of people. I've, who I've are heard fighting. they cut a deal. But they yeah. cut a deal, but they had to vote on the deal, and a lot of people didn't like the deal. So right. that's still a little up in the air. And, and SAG, the actor, and SAG, SAG is about to SAG strike might as well, strike yeah. as well. We they it, they have until the end of the month. It's getting to the end of the month. Mm. I have heard nothing about yeah, an actual deal being made with SAG. So that's. 
going to be interestingly down to the wire. Well, what, what, what's happening here is the numbers, there's two things that are happening. The numbers are so high. Mm. Now, the, what happened with streaming is that the studios were no longer required to report how many views they got. Yeah, they could keep uh, that We just the kind best. of had to take their word for it. And, because uh, they, were, they weren't beholden to anybody. They didn't have yeah, to tell... It wasn't like Nielsen ratings. That, for well, this. they didn't have they to tell a movie theater what the what, mm-hmm. how movies were doing so the movie theaters knew whether to order the films or not. Yeah. And they didn't have to tell retailers how the movies were doing so they knew if they wanted to buy any DVDs mm-hmm. because now they're vertically integrated yeah. and they're only distributing their own product and they can keep that so, under their vest. There's, which is a major paradigm shift in the industry, and it's not good. So two things are happening. Either the numbers are so high yeah. that they would owe all of the writers uh, so much royalties that, yeah. uh, heaven forfend, an executive might get fired. Yeah. Uh, what I assume is the case, however, yeah. is that the numbers are so low that they don't have the money or the royalties. They were only saying that they had high numbers, so they're brand would look good to shareholders. Yeah. And once they revealed their numbers, their companies would lose all their value and the stock market would tank and the entire industry would just fall fucking apart. So what we're saying is yeah. it's a win-win it's scenario. A win-win. So everybody, everybody's going to win at the end of this. It's just going to keep on sucking. It's just, it's just as long as the writer's guild and or the actor's guild and or the director's guild don't cop out mm. And, and just take a deal that's really bad for them. If they actually push, they're gonna actually... Because they're, they're saying, like... They're literally... I think that Apple TV executive was saying, like... Yeah, you know, we could give them the money and we could probably afford it. But we don't want to encourage people to strike. <laughs> so we're gonna make sure they don't do that. We don't want to, like, capitulate mm. to a strike. Because then other industries are gonna think, well, we should strike. Mm. And I'm like, they should. Good. Yeah. So what we gotta do <laughs> is... I'm a justice. I'm what fine. We, what we gotta do is we gotta get as many people striking as possible to the point that they can't produce anything. And then they have to deal. Because at some point, they actually have to make some stuff to justify their positions. Yeah. As long as they don't have to do that, they can wait. <laughs> I'd love to see a comedy film uh, yeah. about executives who um, have to make something. Yeah. And it's like they have to swede things in the office. It's all up to the development executive. Executives are making up these movies and they're just the most awful things. That would actually be pretty funny, actually. Yeah. That's, shit. Don't pitch that. Don't, don't pitch that. <laughs> don't be a scab. Don't be telling anybody about that. They kind of did that. There was a, a joke in uh, one of the Weird Al documentaries called The Complete Al in 1986 where... Um, Classic Al. They, they ran out of money for the State of Shock music video. It was going to have Mick Jagger and Michael Jackson, all the biggest stars in the world. Yeah. And Weird Al read a letter. It's like, we're going to sh- we're gonna premiere the State of Shock music video. It's going to be great. But we ran out of money and none of the stars could show up. So enjoy. And they showed the video and it was literally just an executive at his desk. <laughs> He's like talking on the phone. It's like, okay, I uh, don't know. Roll over my amalgamated. Oh, hang on. The camera's here. I got to go. And he hangs up and he just starts going, da 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 Like he sing- <laughs> no instruments. He's just singing it. <laughs> and that's the music video. It's great. Classic Al. All right, we should we we gotta cut this out. We're, right. It's been a full episode. Hey everybody, thank you for writing in. This has been a lot of fun. Really good letters this week. Um, you can always write in in the future. We're sorry if we didn't get to your email this week, but mm. we might get to it next week. And you can always email us again if we uh, get too far down the line. Uh, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565. Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yeah. And remember, if you send us an actual physical letter, the odds of us reading it, as long as we receive it, 
you know, the mail system isn't always great, but as we usually do, uh, we'll read it mm. on the air. Like, it's basically guaranteed. Um, so, send them on down. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Please leave us a review if you haven't already. It means the world to us, and it helps us like jump up all these damn algorithms. Uh, if you want to help the show in any capacity, the best way to do that is to join our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, uh, where we give you a whole bunch of exclusive podcasts, including, as we discussed on this episode, all our yesterdays, where we review every Star Trek ever. Only the best, we review every single best picture. Ever, every movie ever nominated for Best Picture, rather. Uh, we do commentary tracks. We got Discord hangouts. We got a trivia night coming up this weekend. Um, we try to make it worth your while. So head on down to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And a huge shout out to all of our patrons because without you, we could not do this. Mm. Oh, and you also get all of our new episodes ad free. So, bonus. Um, bada bing, bada boom. And we're on Twitter at Critic Claim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, thanks for writing, everybody. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. Whitney.